Today on Filmmaker Freedom, an in-depth interview with Clara Lehman and Jonathan Lacoque. Clara and Jonathan are the co-founders of Code of Arms, a full-service production and post studio that's created work for some of the biggest companies on earth. They also take their passion projects very seriously. They've made short animated films and documentaries. They made a web series that was nominated for a Webby Award. They've done music videos. And currently, they're in the process of releasing their first feature-length doc. Oh, and they're uh, married to one another. Anyhow, this is a really wide-ranging interview, and we cover a lot of good stuff, um, like the mechanics of building a successful production company, working directly with large corporate clients without having to go through an ad agency, pursuing passion projects in the midst of running a business full-time, creating work that you can be proud of, and quite a bit more. So yeah, it's a damn good conversation, and I really hope you dig it. Hey friend, welcome to Filmmaker Freedom. This is a show for ambitious indie filmmakers who want to make work they're proud of, build audiences, cut out the middlemen, and earn a damn good living selling directly to their fans. My name is Rob Hardy, and I'm a filmmaker and a marketing consultant who's worked with a number of brands and startups to help them connect with online audiences and grow their businesses. Now, in the solo episodes of this show, I like to share direct lessons that I've learned from that experience and help you build an audience and sell your films. But truth be told, my perspective is far from the only one. That's why I like to balance those shows out with long-form interviews with other entrepreneurial indie filmmakers. The goal is to share conversations that are really substantive, inspiring, and genuinely honest and transparent, because there's just not enough transparency in the world of indie film, especially when it comes to the business side of things. And one last thing before we begin, I just want to thank my good friends over at Music Vine for sponsoring this show. Over the years, I've used just about every music licensing platform out there, and I can say without hesitation that Music Vine is at the very top of my list. The quality and uniqueness of the music are outstanding. The prices are reasonable, and the design and functionality of their website are second to none. It's just a pure pleasure to use. So if you're a discerning filmmaker who needs quality music, just go to musicvine.com and use the code FILMFREEDOM for 25% off your next order. All right, now let's get into today's interview. So like I mentioned before, Clara and Jonathan run a studio called Code of Arms, and they've done work for some seriously sizable corporate clients. Think like Google and Microsoft, Land Rover, Marriott, WebMD, and way more than that. And in particular, their motion design and animation work are just stunning. So if you do get a chance, you should definitely check out their reel. Um, which I have embedded in the article that goes along with this episode. And you can find that and all of the others at filmfreedomshow.com. Anyhow, the first half of this conversation really leans towards the corporate and commercial side of Jonathan and Clara's lives. We get into the weeds of how they started Coat of Arms, how they got their first clients, and how they've continued to build the company into what it is today. Um, and there's just lots of really good insight here if you also want to build a service-based business of your own. Then in the second half, we talk passion projects. 
how they balance them with the demands of running a company like this, how they've promoted and gotten exposure for their passion projects, and lots of other useful stuff. And we finish off by talking about Born in a Ballroom, which is their first feature documentary and should be coming out um, sometime in late 2019. I'm not sure. So yeah, I hope you're excited for this one because it's a bit of a departure from the episodes we've done so far, but it was a truly wonderful conversation with loads of insight. Oh, and also just a quick heads up, um, towards the very end of this, like in the last five minutes or so, I think my my internet may be cut out or something because Jonathan's audio gets a little bit choppy and you can still make out what he's saying, but it, it just doesn't sound very good. And that is my bad. So just wanted to give you a heads up about that. But uh, yeah, with that out of the way, Here's my interview with Clara Lehman and Jonathan LeCoque. First off, just welcome and thank you for thank you for being here. And I guess the first thing I'm I'm curious about is just your your creative journey up to this point. Like how on earth did both of you come to be filmmakers and creative entrepreneurs and and all of that? Do you want to start? You want me to start? <laughs> You'll probably get that answer first a lot. <laughs> um so for me, I think you know, it's like the traditional story of like, oh, I always love telling stories and, you know, getting a camera out and making stuff up with friends and filming things, whether, you know, on VHS or beta or, you know, mini DV and that sort of thing. Um, I don't think it, it took a long time for me to like, see that this thing I love to do could be any sort of, uh, you know, professional career. Um, you know, like I said, through elementary and junior high and high school was super active in like local film communities that, uh, you know, so I grew up in Chicago, uh, specifically a suburb called Oak Park. And so me and my friends, we would like create film groups and invite strangers or people at high school when it was the high school group to come make films. We would get the films to play on public access TV. And, you know, again, was just uh, enjoying telling stories, having fun, acting, pretending, that sort of thing. And uh, then went to college, uh, went to Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. That's where Clara and I met. And um, at first was planning on doing, you know, like counseling, therapy, psychology, studied psychology and religion, did not finish religion and decided, you know what, I'm going to try to see if I can do this film thing as a, as a career. Clara and my parents actually bought me a camera. And then of course I wrangled Clara into like acting and doing things in, you know, in college with me uh, for like film classes and that sort of thing. But it wasn't until, you know, maybe junior senior year of college that I said, all right, let me try this. Took some film courses, dropped the, religion because I was doing a double major. It was just too much work anyway. <laughs> and um, then outside, uh, once I graduated college, uh, me and my best friend, John Severson, who was involved in like the junior high, high school clubs, that sort of thing, we got together, created a wedding videography company um, to essentially ultimately make films. So, um, you know, made had a, a good bit. It took time. Clara can attest to this. Clara was working other jobs, uh, allowing me to be, you know, this totally impoverished I was the artist. Breadwinner. Let's be honest. Absolutely, you were the breadwinner, 
And that allowed me and John to create this company for several years, which now, so John still is doing that company. It's called Smiling Toad Productions in Chicago. Very successful company. Um, but uh, when I was involved, we took the finances that we made and we did do a documentary called The Perfect Soldier with Clara, actually, who helped write it. And, um, you know, basically from there, uh, I, I got burnt out on weddings, uh, did PAing, started doing a lot of production work, worked up the ladder, so to speak, from PA to production manager, hired myself as an editor to save money, fell in love with editing and post. And then, you know, my journey kind of continues from there, like to agencies and film studios and broadcast companies until finally deciding with Clara to start Coat of Arms. But now it's your turn. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think my, my story is a little similar, although I was greatly influenced by Jonathan. I grew up in Appalachia, West Virginia, like in the mountains of Appalachia, and um, really thought that there was no way film could be a career. Um, it was just like I watched old movies and loved them, and I wrote plays in, in college or high school. Um, I always loved writing, and so I thought that it was just like I needed to be a journalist or I needed to be, um, you know, maybe do research or something like that. I just thought that film and that kind of creative field was out of reach and not possible for I couldn't make money doing it. Um, went to college studying anthropology and sociology, um, interested in humans and how we interact, and uh, which I can think lends itself to film very easily, especially documentary work. Um, and then Jonathan was taking a film class. And I was like, that sounds cool. I want to take one too. Um, I did not concentrate in film. I just continued with my field of sociology and anthropology. And then um, I actually went into like, uh, research and studying discrimination in the city of Chicago and trying to, um, I thought I wanted to be an attorney. I went to law school for, for a semester. Um, I did really well, but I dropped out and I hated it. Um, and then after that, um, I was like devastated. I was like, what am I going to do? Like what, if I'm not doing law school and I'm not doing research and I'm not working in the field of, I thought I wanted to do administrative medicine type stuff. Um, I just felt like I was lost. And I remember when Jonathan and John were working on A Perfect Soldier, they were really struggling with the arc of the story and how to piece it together after they had already gone and captured the footage over in Cambodia. And I was like, I'm, I'm intrigued. Can I do it for free? I want to help. And so um, they let me generously, like so green, um, they begin outlining and start drafting how we should like basically an editing script. And uh, we worked together, the three of us, and um, along with another producer, and, and we're able to create a film out of it. It's not perfect, even though it's called A Perfect Soldier. <laughs> but I think it was a really good um, test for us to see that, first of all, A, we can work together. We are a married couple. So A, we can work together. B, we both really loved it. And C, I actually did have an ability that was, I could, I could do this and not have gotten an education in it. Like I, the, the, the skill sets I had built through my college education and things like that were enough to translate to film. Um, and then I did some PA work. He, he would pull me on sets, things like that. And then um, uh, eventually both of us were in careers that were paying the bills, but we were like really working toward uh, coat of arms or a business of our own being our sole focus. And in 2010, 
we, uh, I took the first leap for three or four months into coat of arms full time, started our business plan and, uh, got all the licensing ready and then started, um, a one project while Jonathan was still working. And then he joined me in a little bit. Um, and I haven't looked back. Like we've never taken on another full-time job ever. Like we've both been full-time coat of arms. That's a really long winded yeah. story. It's, yeah, it's hard to just know, you know, yeah. It's it's wild. That's awesome yeah. though. So you both have been full time with Coat of Arms since 2010. Yes. That's gangster. Yes. I love it. Yeah. So let's yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead. It's been amazing. I mean, and we actually were the only two full timers until um, last August, and we hired our first full time employee. While we did have some like kind of permalance freelancers and over time we've built beautiful wonderful relationships with the freelancers that have worked with us for like literally years they've worked with us off and on um the first full-timer was in august of 2018 that's crazy so let's yeah let's talk about code of arms what is it like what do you guys what services do you provide and who do you provide those services for Sure. So Coat of Arms is technically a post-production company. Um, we do dabble in production as well, but we are, our bread and butter and our, our desire is to stick with post. I mean, I love writing, so that's kind of more on the production side or the pre-pro side. So, but it seems to like lend itself to that no matter what. Um, our mission is to create really compelling and beautiful stories that don't always have to be corporate and don't always have to be docs and don't always have to be fiction. So um, we just like to like bring ourselves and um, our viewpoint to every project we do. And we don't want to um, sacrifice on quality. So our, our main goal is quality and uh, being true to like who we are as people um, and Jonathan, what, what else would you add? I think one thing that's interesting about Coat of Arms is like to certain clients, we are certain things. Um, we are almost like the counter niche company. Like, oh, we just do color, you know, or we just do VFX because to some clients, we're an agency. Yeah. And, and we, I think, really try hard not to call ourselves an agency. And we're always like, no, 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 no. We're just like, you call us a production company or a post company, you know, um, just because of our experience in the agency world. And that's kind of what birthed Coat of Arms to some degree is like these experiences we had and wanting to have a healthy culture and lifestyle and, you know, value people and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so to different clients, we are different things. So we are this sort of like broad, service company in that like to some people we are doing everything from concept look development writing you just know design. filming you know to others we are just yeah design or illustration uh or post you know so it's an interesting thing because i remember going in thinking oh man we have to like let's just do editing or let's just do something very specific you know maybe it's writing and editing or or something like that and then finding that both because our professional experiences were broad and ha we have these connections, you know, in broadcast, in film, you know, in agencies and marketing, that it has allowed us to uh, leverage our relationships in such a way that we can kind of adjust the face of the company slightly or the way we talk 
to each client because we kind of can do all of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I almost feel like generally speaking, when, when someone comes to you and they need some kind of visual media, like some kind of art that expresses a story for them, they aren't looking for one thing. So we couldn't really just edit. Like even for the filmmaker, when the filmmaker comes to us, they don't just want an editor. A lot of times they want a writer. They want um, they want a colorist and they want a sound designer. They want a producer. So it's kind of like we love wearing those many hats so why and, and I think we're good at it like we can't do everything but we can do a handful of things between the two of us um so I, I feel like that was why we we've always just kind of opened ourselves up mm -hmm. to being like anything film anything uh video related we like to do <laughs> yeah and that yeah. that's actually really interesting because I mean I, I'm sure you guys know it but like a lot of the advice that you hear in like the the freelancing or starting a production company um, just sphere, I guess, is niche down, focus on one very specific core offering. Um, mm -hmm. And it sounds like you guys have found pretty substantial success outside of that. Um, I'm curious, do you have a, do you have like a specific type of client that you tend to work with or is it again, just sort of uh <laughs> Does it all over the board with like the different types of services you offer? Yeah. yeah. I think on one hand, because maybe we should have said this, but like, because Clara and I are both producers, I think that that has been at the foundation of the company to such an extent that, to such an extent that like any of these avenues need a producer. And so like when these different clients to answer your question, come to us, you know, like for example, we'll do a lot of design oriented or animation oriented work for like large corporations like Google or I don't know what another one would be, but Jaguar, let's say. And like, they don't really know that we do production or can do, you know, live action post-production or things of that nature. They're coming to us for this very specific, relatively specific, because we're still writing and kind of doing the full, that's why they think we're an eight, we're like a design agency to, those companies, you know, but then, but then to like a filmmaker, you know, the filmmaker will come to us and sometimes it is like, Hey, I just need to color correct my sure. film. But a lot of times it's, Hey, I have this film. This is what I'm trying to do. Like help me just post it. And so a lot of times we will do some writing, we'll do some editing, color, sound, visual effects to like, it becomes a full post-production experience for the filmmaker and like just those two examples and it kind of continues down the line depending on certain clients it's pretty divergent you know um which we kind of love too i think another thing that's worth noting is we're producers and part of why we love being producers or creative directors is the variety yeah and so like we get super excited about oh live action or 360 video or animation or this is something i don't know but like let's try it out and yeah. see see how I have it goes myself i get so i like get so hung up in like phases of of projects that i i almost get like for example we're writing a project right now and it's just the beginning and I know in about a week, I'm be like, I am so done with that phase. I can't wait to be done. Like, and that's what I love. I love that like you transition from one phase to the next. And every time I get to get my hands dirty in every phase and yet it's 
fun. Like you feel like you're renewed at every phase and like, okay, now I get to start over fresh and make this even better at this phase. And I think that that we love that. So we don't want to lose the ability to be on the writing end or the sound end, um, or the, the distribution end. Like we just like it all. So we're going to do it all (laughs) until we don't. And then we'll see what happens. (laughs) Yeah. That's super cool. I want to, I guess I'm just curious about like getting a, getting a company like this started and then getting to the point where you can, um, just live off it full time, especially the pair of you. Um, I guess, I guess I'm curious about like what kind of challenges you guys faced up front, like how you got those first clients and how you, how you turn this into a a sustainable business. Yeah. So it has felt a little bit like it naturally happened. I'm sure there was design in it and the way we, we actually made choices and that's kind of life. Like you don't really think about the day-to-day choices, but in the end you're like, I just, I did design my life. Right. So, um, when we first took the leap, we had only like maybe three people we were working with. One was Jaguar Land Rover. Uh, one was an, uh, independent producer that had a variety of like medical clients. And the other was actually a filmmaker that uh, he was most mostly production. So those three were our, like, like our, you know, diving board Mm -hmm. in. And um, Jonathan has a really great talent of like seeing work and being like, I love that work. I'm going to reach out to them. And, um, or like, noticing something about a company that's interesting and just reaching out and be like, Hey, if you ever need a video, I'm interested in working with you. And so I think that that you can't be scared of that. Like that is a really great quality. And I think that most of the time people love whenever you do reach out. So that has been our saving grace in the beginning, especially, um, I believe it truly was. And, um, so those, those kinds of little things would propel into a bigger relationship and, um, or like, you know, this, this, uh, mostly production filmmaker recommended us to another filmmaker and that just kind of propels and, and, and slowly becomes something else. Um, and then, uh, how did we, how did we get in with Google? Well, that was like a, yeah. an editor. So I think one, like looking back, I think what, what saved us is naturally in our life, we moved around a few times yeah. uh, and that forced us to change roles. So I think, um, you know, obviously I started that wedding videography company and then in that world started to amass, you know, like contacts on the production side, like, Oh, we need shooters and editors and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, when that kind of fizzled out and, or, you know, we wanted to do something else and actually that it was you going to law school, Mm -hmm. right? So Clara was going to go to law school and that forced us to move to West Virginia. At which point I thought, all right, like, let me dust off like my BA in psychology. I'm going to go back to counseling or something, you know, um, because they're really, from what I could tell, there was not a production community in West Virginia. Uh, and it, and there is one, but it's still very, very small. So I started doing research and found a film studio in um, Pittsburgh. It was actually North of Pittsburgh in Cranberry Township applied to them just on a whim, like, Hey, I'm moving to West Virginia and I realize I'm kind of far, but figured I'd see if you guys have a need for a producer, an editor or something like that. And they brought me in, interviewed me, and then they hired me. So I ended up working at a film studio 
as basically like a senior editor, then a post-production supervisor. And um, through that amassed again, like a lot of contacts and then also was client facing. So like I would be in meetings with Verizon or Samsung or, you know, like these big groups and starting to have my name recognized because of the work we were doing for those companies. Then naturally through that, the parent company of the film studio was an agency. And so then they brought me in as a creative director. Basically, I was working like two jobs, which yeah. is insane. And like, I wouldn't recommend news. it. It was bad for my mm-hmm. health. Not good. Um, but again, sort of like these types of changes, I think, played a huge role when it came time to start Code of Arms because I had agency contacts, both client and art side, you know, film contacts from the studio production contacts from the studio and from the, the videography and company. a little bit of freelancer contacts. Because and fr- of- yeah, because like as a post-supervisor, I was like, oh, hey, we need a designer or we need a visual effects artist. And I would have to bring them in-house mm-hmm. um, or hire a freelancer. You actually brought me in as a copywriter. That's right, yeah, at, at the agency. At the agency. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it really, even though that time was hard because he was driving really far and it was like, not the ideal situation as far as the hours were intense. Like the amount that we, you learned on that job was insane. Like you learned so much, you know, stupid lingo and, (laughs) you know, what this process of pitching is like and what, what are the positives and negatives of that? And, and there were a lot of things that I think you gained. It was like when I worked at the film studio and at the agency, it was almost like, coat of arms but just internal like they were really young and so like really i shouldn't have been the post supervisor you know like really i shouldn't have been a creative director you know it's just that because they were small they were just starting and they didn't have the experience per se to know like no we need to get a creative director from like you know bbdo or from uh you know leo burnett and steal them away or find someone with all this experience to be able to like know the pitch process and know contacts and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. so i definitely benefited from that but then also was certainly harmed in the sense of like overwork overstress all those types of things so i don't think i'd recommend (laughs) that you know path but within that i do think like you can kind of live anywhere and if you are reach are able to reach out to people and either do like low pay work or like passion project work while you're working a full-time job like the more relationships that you can build i think the better your foundation is if you enter you know int- intend to build a company uh, yeah. in the future what are your thoughts on uh, spec work so yeah, it's hard. So basically at Coat of Arms, we avoid spec work. Um, we have done it and we still will do it on certain occasions. So like we're working with a nonprofit organization right now uh, in Chicago that works with like inner city kids uh, in the ed- education industry or ed- education sector. Um, and that's basically pro bono work. Um, and yeah, then I wouldn't call that spec. I guess that's different. Yeah. yeah. Spec work, we, we have pitched mm-hmm. for an agency but typically we avoid it. And I think if you're doing spec work, might as well do it for yourself is the thing I would say. Um, So, or for like-minded people. So like 
in Chicago, when I was PAing, like I wasn't paid for a, a while. And then I slowly built relationships to be paid and then became an associate producer or assistant producer, then a production manager and so on. Um, but if I hadn't gone and just been like, oh man, I see, you know, based on these forums or whatever that you guys are filming this film, it sounds really cool. Like, I just want to learn and come and because I didn't go to film school. So to me, that sort of spec work was, and again, it's not, I guess spec work is, is a little different, but it was a way for me to get an education through my labor, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, but generally, I don't know if you have anything to add on the spec work side, but typically we yeah. could have wanted to try to avoid it. I feel like maybe I do influence our decision not to pitch a lot because um, morally I have a resistance to it. I feel that it's kind of wrong to ask anyone to do free work unless there is a creative outlet that you are really wanting to express and you feel that you're, you are, um, uh, benefiting from it on a, on a big level and, and can put your own name on it. You don't have to hide the identity of who's been on the project, things like that. I just think that pitches, it's just not fair. And so I <laughs> have always pushed ourselves, my, my, myself, Jonathan and our company not to do it. Um, and maybe we've lost a little bit of work because of that, but um, I just, I have like a really a moral, big so yeah. I have resistance to it. And I think a lot of people in the industry do because they feel burned by it and they feel it was unfair. And I think that it is unfair. And so that's okay to say no. Mm -hmm. And we do. I think like the last time we spec'd or did spec work was four or five years. I mean, it's been a I long time. I don't think time. it necessarily creates better work either. Yeah. Like I think that it might not. I think that you're just kind of, there's this desperate, like, almost vomit that you're kind of doing whenever you do pitch work and it's kind of like you're showing that and and it shouldn't there should be a, a dance and there should be co consideration for each party and and I think that it just ends up being better when everybody has something on the on the table yeah and it's clear what those rules are and and you, everybody feels better in the end. Yeah. Like you're just the agency that asks you to do pitch work is going to feel better when they actually pay for it. Um, the company is going to feel better. The freelancer is going to feel better. And yeah, I think it's almost like going into not an abusive relationship is the wrong. It's, yeah. like it's too extreme. Yes. But you know, like there's something where it's like there's a disrespect because both are are not coming equally. You know, into the relationship or mm -hmm. into the project or or what have you. So, like I know for us. Like, we won't do spec work, but if a client's like, listen, I, all I have is this amount of money, sure. and what can you do? Like, that to us, we will have that conversation, certainly, because it's like, hey, at least there's some skin in the game. We can have a sober conversation about what's expected, what's possible, and find a balance between, like, the expectation and the actual reality, you know? Yeah. So it... It sounds like you guys are keen on like building direct relationships with these companies, even big ones. Like, do you work directly for Google without a without an agency in the middle? Right. Yeah. So for Google, and this is kind of what I think you alluded to earlier. So when I was when I worked my way up from PA to producer in Chicago on the production side, I hired an editor on a music video yeah. and a music video that I got Clara 
to actually be talented. Do you remember that? Anyway, so that editor, um, you know, who became a friend, went on to become an editor in California and then eventually wanted to start a family, get a stable job, and, and is now like an editor and basically like project manager at Google. And so then he, because we stay in contact, you know, saw the work that Coat of Arms was doing. It was like, hey, like, I love the work you guys are doing. We know each other. Do you mind if I like pitch you to some of the projects? We're like, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know? And so that's how that relationship with Google. And we do work specifically with Google Cloud, with subcategories of the umbrella of Google. And to them, we are an agency. Well, like, and the lovely thing is once the, this young man shared uh, our information and we did a successful project with him and, and the team he suggested us to, that team at Google recommended us to other teams. And so, as you know, Google's huge. Teams don't know each other. They don't know Adam from Eve. Like, they're just like, it's insanity. And so, um, slowly we would get passed around a little bit. And eventually they asked us to literally become an agency of record, if you will, even though, again, we aren't really an agency, but like to file with them and get a contract in place to be like, okay, we can use these guys without having to always go through the whole process of, of, uh, legal, you know? And so that was a big turning point for us. And, and I can't thank Danny enough because it's that one person just opened the door for us. And that's, it's really kind. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, I think he saw that we were passionate and driven and going to do the damn best job we could do no matter what. And so, uh, he was, he was an advocate and that's yeah. great. Well, it's amazing how I just posted this on social, uh, about Jeremy contacting us with Jaguar mm -hmm. Land Rover. Yep. So it's, it's amazing how like the relationships that you build, it's like, be kind to everybody, try and be you know, a good person with everyone, do the best work you can. And certainly with that, do your best to remain social with them, you know, or communicate yeah. with people. Because obviously, if you don't try to stay in touch or, you know, do that, I mean, it is a job, frankly, it is a little bit of a job to do that, then they won't remember you, you know. Um, but yeah, it's amazing how many clients or stages of our careers and coat of arms's growth has come from like I was not expecting Danny to call us ever, you know, like we, I had hired him and we had tried to hire him as an editor on other things. And so just from that communication, he was like keeping us in mind, I guess, for other work. Yeah. That's super cool. And so do you, is that generally how you work with these bigger clients is, is just forming these direct relationships and, and sort of becoming your own little agency? Yeah, I, we try. I mean, it's as you can imagine, it's hard to to define and and pick when an agency is between you and the client. Like you don't really have a lot of control. But I don't know what it is. But we've been very fortunate in that. Like just recently, we were we were contacted directly by a big company that wants to make a video, um, and it's an inspiring. And I can't tell you about it yet, but hopefully we can do it. Um, but like it's direct again, and I don't know why that happens. It, 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 I think that in this particular situation, it was an individual that it does graphic design and, and motion design. And he, um, works within that 
that company. So I think honestly, it's internet technology and Vimeo and all these different platforms, Behance, all these one things that people are following are starting to be like, hey, I can go direct to people, pay a little less, get a little more efficiency, and um, hopefully the experience is authentic and um, it yeah. will just feel like I'm right there with the artist. And I think that that has been really what they feel from us, yeah. maybe. I, th I think to expand on that, the clients we get are basically one of two paths. One is we know them, we've worked with them, or they know someone we've worked. It's like the word of mouth kind of yeah, a thing, you know? Exactly. And then the other path is like social media, online. Like we, it's such a pain, man. But like we do try to like share stuff online, you know, as much as we can. And I think in this, the case that you're talking about, this potential new client, for them, they saw some of the work that we've done for WebMD and, and really liked the way that we approached some of those stories, some of that content, and wanted something similar. And it's amazing how it really, like I know you mentioned like budget and it's more direct, but like honestly, I think a lot of the time it's just the work. Like, hey, I'm a producer or I'm an account person at some company. Yeah. We need this video let me go look for examples so that we know what we might be getting. Yeah. Oh, like I really loved this video. Let's contact that company. Yeah. I like to think that their budgets don't change if they're going to an agency versus us versus a freelancer, a group of freelancers or whatever, because that would be pretty bogus. But um, so I, I don't think it does. I think that they, I don't know. I think it might, it might like, I think the ones that have the, the like big dollars tend to just have the relationship with the agencies. Sure. And then those others that are outside of that world have less, less budget because they can't pay retainer yeah. or huge. I'm not in know. that world. So I right. can't comment on that. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. That the agency world's pretty wild for sure. But anyway, <laughs> I so you guys also do passion projects, personal projects. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Before we get into what those are, I'm just curious about how you, how you balance running a, a company like this with, with work like that. Cause I like client work can eat up your life in a way that is just demoralizing and, and all of that. I've been there, done that. Yes. Um, sure. So I'm, I'm just curious how you strike that balance. Yeah, it can be consuming. Um, you could get stuck or sucked into a project for years if you're not careful. <laughs> but, um, so first of all, we've created a little bit of a um, a process for every project. Like we and we are pretty, we stick to it. Like we are. That's our producer side. Very like, hey, this is this is the t timeline, this is the budget. Uh, and we really push our clients to stick to that because when we're working on that project, we can't do other work or, or if we are, we can't, we have to balance it and, and be reasonable about how much time we can put into this versus uh, a personal project. Re really quick, just to say something on that, because it's a really good point. I've found like, we probably have lost clients and then gained clients based on that in the sense that like, there's a client or there's a creative studio or person for everyone out there. Like, I don't think you can be any size and like, you, you know, people sometimes worry like, Oh, I need to get certain, I need to get really big to be able to work for this client or we're too big. We need to be smaller. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, really it's about the value statement and who the people are at the company. Because like, 
we've had clients say, oh, we really love you guys that you push us. Like you force us to stay on schedule and to like be on budget budget, and all these types of things. Whereas I'm sure we've had clients and it hasn't really been said, maybe not, but where it's like, oh man, like let's not work with coat of arms because like, I don't know what I want or I don't, you know, like we don't want to be like more flexibility. We want more flexibility. And it isn't that we can't be flexible, but you know, like we're definitely on point with that stuff. Right. Which I think is interesting. And we try anyway. to be reasonable. Like there's always that like where you, where you have to compromise and we do look at that. And Jonathan and I will have a serious discussion of like, is this a compromise moment or is this a like hold to your guns moment? Um, so we, that's our first thing. And I think if you have that as your backbone, like first of all, you're setting up clear expectations for every party involved. And then you're allowing um, the creative to get wild within those parameters without it going way off and tangential tangential um so that was that's the first thing we do in order to balance uh the second thing we do is we surround ourselves with the best like or we try to if we can afford their day rates and things like that but we really try hard to uh look at the freelance world and look at uh the artists in this this pool of our of our globe like literally it's global like we are not limited to the united states we're not limited to uh canada we can go anywhere and and that has been so um helpful in that like not only do these people you know bring a lot to the table and elevate us and and make us think in a different way than we do but also they are like taking something and 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 taking a task within our bubble of what we have to do and just running with it. And yes, we're guiding them and we're giving feedback from the client or, or, you know, saying, you know, that idea is a little strange, but we're letting them have um, ownership. And I think that that is so important. Like that ownership feeling is, is critical to every project. Like if, if a freelancer or an artist doesn't feel ownership, it's not going to be a good project. And we try to be very inclusive. Like if we're involving people, there's a reason that we're involving them versus like, we could just have any editor do this or any, you know, it's like, let's bring in people where there's meaning, you know, as this team, like we group of people are together for a reason and let's like rely on each other to build this, you know, like this video or project as strongly or as well as we can. I Um, think, yeah, I really believe that like the people we work with are better than us. Like I think they are, like they are just, I know they are. And I think that that's really (laughs) important. It's, it's important to do. And I think that if you can do that on a, like, let's say you have a personal project and you have a cool story, surround yourself with like a handful of people that are really amazing at what they do. And it's going to be great. I think to step back for a second, you know, you asked like, how do you rebalance like (laughs) personal work? No, this is great. Um, I think in one way is like we prioritize telling stories that we want to tell. And so, you know, whether it would be financed from a client, from ourselves, like we are kind of crazy in the sense that like, we're going to just do it. If that makes sense. I don't know. Like, like we are super inspired by certain things. We are creators in like, our meaning is in that, I guess, like we find meaning in that creation. And so I feel like if we aren't creating content that we care about, we feel like there's a bit of meaninglessness. And we have felt that at other companies. And that's why we put such a priority on that. And so 
just as an example, a lot of times we will set the company up in a way where we have XYZ clients that have XYZ budgets, which means we need XYZ people. But we're going to book these people for a certain amount of time with the understanding, the mutual understanding that we will work on this main project. But when we're waiting on renders, when we're waiting on feedback, when we're, you know, slow or something like we are going to work on this project together. And you are the person, one of the people we want to have involved for this reason. Um, So we definitely plan it in such a way that we have these things we want to do. And then we build toward them out of the client work that we get. And everybody wins because honestly, what happens is the the freelancer that might be working on that project, it ends up that they get booked longer or they get like some freelance fill hours later because the project that we did as a creative one doesn't, doesn't get all tightly finished within that little short period or whatever. Not to mention. So they get to keep going. Right. And the artists get the inspiration of working on something that's like, Hey, we're going to make this video about the science of sleep, you know, like, and we can do whatever we want, Mm -hmm. you know? So yes, we're doing this video for this company that maybe isn't as exciting to you, but we are doing this video for fun, you know? And so that there, there's, and that, and they influence each other, sure. you know, like yeah. we t- we'll be doing something on the side, like during a render and be like, oh man, you know, like we should bring this to that healthcare video that yeah. we were, that we're working it's, on. It is amazing because there's something about, and we all know this with creativity. It just, it, it flourishes when you don't always stick to one like line. Mm-hmm. So uh, it has been very impactful for all of us. And, and I think that's helpful. Um, and it, the, the thing is that we never lose sight of the fact that the client project will come first. Right. Of course. Um, yeah. And that is the, 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 the hero, the, the, the focus. So sometimes there are, and I have to be honest, there are projects where we just can't get ahead enough in order right. to do our, yeah. pro- our personal project. So, Hey, freelancer out there, if you're listening, don't right. hurt. If we didn't do didn't that. <laughs> do a freelance or a artistic yeah. project together. And I would say that happens more often. Yeah. Honestly, it's like, there's still, more projects where it's like, hey, you're you're quote unquote in house for three months or two whatever for a month, and we are just working on this one project, and it's just enough work that we don't need to or can't, you know, balance with something else. And I think along with the balance thing too, like we just also really try to choose wisely what projects we know we can handle um, and what we're interested in, because if we're not passionate and interested in the topic that we're going to talk about, then we probably aren't going to be efficient and do the, do the project justice, nor are we going to get it done in like the best way we can. So we have said no to projects that would have a budget, but we just can't either. We can't balance it with the work we're already doing, or it's not something we feel we can do justice to, um, or something like that. So, uh, the balance thing is like, don't say yes to everything. Try to be a little picky. And um, make sure that you try to inspire yourself. If you're on a little bit more of a harder project, inspire yourself with something. Even if it's like, you know, those just sitting down for an hour and drawing something in the middle of the day. I think that that's important. Yeah, I do think like when we're talking about how we got here, it feels so unorchestrated. But now it is very orchestrated. And I think it's, it's worth saying a few things. One is the finances from our clients allow us to do our passion projects. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing is we have prioritized and made 
sacrifices as a company to prioritize the passion projects. And a few examples of that are first, we moved to West Virginia and live in an area where we pay literally 30% what we were paying in Chicago for the exact same things for the most part outside of like, I can't walk out my door and I'm at like Target or something. It takes an hour to get groceries. Right. So, so that's a sacrifice. Yeah. But so we made a conscious choice to say, hey, let's live in a place where we don't need to make as much money in order to say no and in order to do the things that we want to do. Right. Um, and then also just that having that priority of balance, like it goes into like family, it goes into like, yeah, that work-life balance. And in the clients we pick in that we've used our passion projects as examples mm-hmm. of the type of work we want to do. And so there's been this coalescence happening as we are growing that like now our passion projects are kind of becoming our client work know, because it's like, We've done all these passion projects and put them out there for free and just did them because we wanted to. And people are, I mean, they're not noticing that much. That sounds so like literally like we don't have many followers. Like it's not like that. But somehow this one person every once in a while will see it. And then it's like, hey, I would love to do a video like that for my company. And so now we're starting to see some of that integration. Yeah. Man, I love literally everything about that. Like, it's part of the reason I live in in Tucson is because it's so cheap and it just right. it takes so yeah. much I don't know so much weight off your chest not having to pay like I don't know 2 grand a month for a one bedroom apartment or some crap. Right, exactly. Um and also the that idea that you build up your your like ideal body of work um through passion projects or whatever and then through whatever crazy ass law of the universe it attracts opportunities that are in line with that. I don't, I don't know what it is or how it works, but it's uh, your body of work just is like a magnet that that pulls people in. Um, There's like a, there's a thread that's, that was running through that whole thing before of essentially being picky and saying no a lot and, or maybe, maybe not a lot. I'm not sure, (laughs) but, um, but it, it sounds like it comes down to, to prioritizing stories that you guys care about stories that are in line with your your personal values or your company values um and i guess i guess the question is just something along the lines of like what does it mean for a story to be meaningful to you what does it what does it take for you to be like hell yes i'm doing that yeah that's a good question it's funny because like giant ant is a company that we admire so much uh, and they do amazing like motion design and storytelling frankly uh work they're in canada and vancouver and they actually have like a manifesto yeah. and it's like i read their manifesto i'm like yeah like that's it <laughs> whereas for us i think it's like we don't have anything written i mean frankly we're three full-time employees so maybe that's a difference too but for me, and I'll let you speak, but like for me, it's much more of a gut check, you know, like, yeah, like, go ahead. No, go, please. Yeah. It's like a gut check. Basically. It's just like, how does thinking about this and and telling a story like this make me feel? Uh, Is it something I would want to watch or hear? Do I care about it? And then more than anything, like the number one factor almost is like, does it make me cringe anywhere? You know, like, is there any cringeworthy aspect to this? Like, you know, there's, and, and, and I will say just to back up for a second, we have done work sure. that we aren't like proud of now, you know? 
And it's one of those things where we would say no now, but we didn't say no before. And so I think it's only fair to acknowledge that. Um, but we're lucky enough to be able to say no well, now. In, <laughs> in five years, we'll probably say, oh man, we're cringing at the fact that, yeah, so it's yeah. going to continue to change and evolve. But yeah, I think that that gut check, it's a weird, it's so um, ineffable or, you know, it's something that you can't really describe. Yeah. And I feel like that is... Well, it's different for it's different, different for people. Everybody. Yeah. And luckily, Jonathan and I, again, we are married. We literally have the same kind of morals mostly and uh, view, certain viewpoints are similar. So like, it's not as hard for us to decide. And so it's been like as a partnership in mm-hmm. our company, we don't typically disagree. And, but- and poor Ryan, he's outnumbered. So, you know, like our design director in Chicago, like <laughs> he disagrees. Oh, it's actually, too- though, remember actually, one time yeah, Ryan right. and I agreed yep. that we shouldn't do a project and you were like, okay, you guys are right in the end. Yep. And we that's didn't. True. Yeah, but, I do. Um, yeah, it's just, it is a discussion. I think that being real and just saying what's bothering you and not hiding that it, with within your internal team is critical. And even writing it down, let's say you're, you are a freelancer and you work by yourself, just write it down, write the five points of why, five points of no, or yes or no, and then you will sleep on it. And the next day you will have an answer. Um, and you're not always going to make the right decision because things change as the project goes. It could get... It could well, and your awful. life changes. Like there, dude, there's honor in being the brick laying concrete guy who's putting food on your... T- or, or, or the McDonald's, what, you know what I mean? Like whatever that thing is, whatever like is the typical like, oh, we don't want to do work for them because they hurt the what, environment or, you know, like I think, you know, it's hard because life is so complicated and you know, this world we live in is so complicated, but there are times where it's like, you're not hurting anybody. The company's not hurting anybody. Sure. You know, you're promoting like beauty supplies or you're, you know, there's something that's like in the end, like really, like, is there that much, but, but there is meaning in doing work that people see or care about in some degree and, or more importantly, putting food on the table and providing for a family. And so I think there's definitely like, it's hard because it'd be so lovely to live in this world where it's like, we could just always say no to, you know, the whatever's, you know, all these, these companies that, you know, we don't always align with. So. Well, the nice thing is too, because we do the writing a lot of times we can nudge them towards something that we feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you get nudged back and they're like, no, we really need this point in the, in this commercial or or whatever. But, um, you know, for the most part, that has given us a lot of control. And sometimes they're like, we trust you guys, just do what you want. And that's really cool. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's a balancing act. And and you I know, think it's okay to make mistakes. Like, please do not take this as like, we've done everything perfect, because we've definitely made mistakes. And we um, still are, do. We're learning every yeah. day. So. Yeah. And I, I will say like, two things. One is, like, we, because the whole reason we started Coat of Arms was because of like what we saw and didn't like at other places. And so the backbone of like everything Coat of Arms does is on this like foundation of like, let's be good people. Let's try and communicate well. Let's be honest. Let's try and have these core values that, uh, you know, influence whatever we do. And so there's a natural like question of like checking our guts and, you know, like talking openly that maybe don't exist Oh, definitely didn't exist at most of the companies I worked for. It was all about the client, the money, you know, those types of things. So I think that makes it different immediately. Mm-hmm. But I also think like there's a good example, like we've done work for Chick-fil-A 
And I think Chick-fil-A can be a bit of a um, polarizing, uh, polarizing company. Yeah, and so like the work we've done for them, because, because even we have some of those, some trepidation, let's say, with a company like that, not to mention it's a fast food company, you know, like and fast food isn't necessarily a dietary, a, a positive dietary element to people a lot that's, of times. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, let's say they come to us with work, you know, that's something that we are open with them about. Like I remember we just did a, some conference video work for them and we said, Hey, thank you for coming to us. We are honored, humbled, you know, that you would consider us. Here are some concerns we have. Let's just talk through them if you're open to it. And like, if you're not comfortable, walk away and that's okay. And so I think, first of all, it takes the confidence of like, we might not get the job because we're already saying like, hey, we're not being easy, you know? And I think a lot of times freelancers, companies, there's almost a lack of confidence Mm -hmm. to say no to like walk away and oh yeah, my god. Or you that know. you have to be easy on every step. Right. And that's not true. Uh, pushback is so yeah. great for a project. Or even at agencies, like the trickle down that of that pressure and oh, I have to say, I have to work late. Okay, you know, like, honey, I'm not going to be home. I have to do this. It's like, no, you don't. You literally don't have to do any of that, you know? But anyway, so that's that whole culture thing. But so in that conference thing, we video, we talked about like some of our concerns, like are there any LGBTQ contrary, you know, uh, communications, like what, what is the conference about? Like those types of things. And so we've been lucky to have clients like in that case, in this Chick-fil-A case. And there was also an agency, I forget the name of the agency involved that they allowed us to to be ourselves, frankly, and to say, okay, cool. We're cool with this, this conference video because it's positive. And then also the other video, like we did a food waste video and we're super into like saving the planet. So let's definitely talk and do this, you know, whereas if they came to us and it was like, Hey, let's do this video that is, I don't know. Very negative. Yeah. yeah that's Or just some viewpoint we yeah, didn't that we don't agree with. with we, we would, would tell them just say, we can't do this. Right. There's someone out there for you. And there are, yeah, there will be people out there for them. Whether we know them or not, they'll find them, you know? Exactly. Yeah, pushback is important. I think yeah. that a lot of times, and I've uh, I've grown into this slowly, and I've still got more to go. But like, it's okay to when you're, for example, in my situation with writing, it's okay for me to be really honest and like, listen, you don't want to change the structure of this because there's a reason for it, and there's that you can fight for things like a, a motion designer needs to fight for a certain keyframe or you know whatever like it's important to trust again trust that gut because you're you are the artist and you probably they're coming to you for that lens and so um if you're not doing that you're doing a disservice to the project yeah one thing i i I do i was just thinking about that i'd love to say is like this is our you know viewpoint our journey like we are two you know like two relatively privileged Caucasian from relatively middle-class families that haven't had to deal with certain roadblocks that it has, I think our confidence, let's say to say no, was brought up, I think from a young age in that, like my parents are pretty, you know, my, my mom is, uh, I'm first generation American. My mom's from Cuba. My dad's from Belgium. Um, and they came and made a life for themselves that allowed them to 
train me to say no and to do things that yeah, I believe they got, in. They got a great education. Where if, yeah. if, if I was like, um, you know, a black trans low income, you know, like if the right combination of things didn't come together, I think that journey, it would be so much harder. Yeah. And so I just want to like acknowledge that and say like, you can still say no, no matter who you are, but that isn't to say like, our journey has been, would be the right path because, you know, certain things came together in certain ways that. Yeah. And I think in that situation, again, and I'm not trying to like say Jonathan's like this amazing person. He is pretty cool. But like, even for me as a woman, sometimes I've had situations where on a call there's, I'm not being addressed or, uh, you're not as important as the man in the room. And I'm not saying that happens often. It's like one out of 15 times. Right. And so, uh, luckily I have an advocate and Jonathan's an advocate and that like, he, uh, encourages like, well, Hey Clara, what do you think? And he'll do it pointedly on the call that that he's, we have discussed and then we are noticing that happening. So if you are in a position of powerlessness or, um, something like that, I think find advocates because those people are going to make sure your voice is heard and that you can say no and that you can, or you can uh, express how artist artistically you can be, uh, you know, a, a powerful force. And be an advocate for yourself too, yeah. right? You know, it's like, hard to do, but which yeah. is hard, but yeah, it's a challenging thing for sure. Yeah. But anyway, sorry. I didn't mean to like totally derail it. It was just something that I was thinking about. I was like, oh man, you know. No, I love it. I love it. Um, so we're like an hour into this and we still haven't talked about your your personal projects yet. And I do <laughs> I do want to talk about those, but I there's one question that's just like been nagging at me for a little bit. And it's how do you run a company together and stay married? Yeah. Well, we also built a house together and stayed married, which they say is harder. So, uh, yeah, honestly, we're good at different. I always say this to people, we're good at different things. And we recognize that. And we early on in the first like year, I kept on being like, you know, I just don't know what, like, we need to define things a little more like what, what's your role? What's my role? And I think that defining of roles while they bleed together sometimes and can is important so that each of you has an identity within your company. And so that each of you has an identity within your marriage. Um, it's so hard though. Like, hard. I think I would not recommend partnering to anybody because it's just challenge. Like I, so like I partnered with my best friend, literally my best friend in the world. And it didn't really end well, you know, like it ended well in that, like we're friends, everything's yeah. great. The company's great. So that's not the right way to put it. It's, it didn't work out. Let's say mm-hmm. like for whatever reason, like at some point in our professional relationship outside of the friendship, our goals changed. And that isn't to say that, you know, like, goals change, values change. And like, that is a scary thing that you need to be open and honest about. And I think for Clara, you know, and and me, like, I think that we together, for whatever reason, our, our core is similar enough from a value standpoint that that allows us to have the differences that we have outside of that, because like, we can still talk about it. We're open and honest with each other. We, you know, like we still fight. We still have the disagreements that literally any relationship would and does have. Well, and it, as business partners, but then as, as, yeah. marital partners, <laughs> as like, parents, of course as, we know like you know, what that role, oh, I role means and yes, like you know, what that little bit of sarcasm in your voice right. means. And so that leads into other things and leads into your home. But, but 
I feel like respect and the roles and respect for those roles. And then really what binds us is we are just both very passionate and we um, enjoy the same things like telling our story, like telling lullaby theory stories or whatever was like, Oh my God, I love this. Don't you? And he's like, yes, I love this. And so when you have something common like that, it, you can, you can get through. And like, for example, building our house together while it was one of the hardest things we've ever done, because it's just, it's constant. It's a huge investment. Um, we had a common purpose, a common goal, and we respected each other's eye for like, I don't like that. Or, you know, I'm going to comment on the fact that these windows aren't straight. Okay. You do that. I don't care. (laughs) um, Picking battles. I I think respect is a big one though. I think, and and I do think it's really, again, like, I feel like we've been lucky to live lives that allowed us to get to know ourselves well enough to know what we like and don't like. Yeah. And, 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 and I don't even mean that because I'm still working on like figuring myself out, but I mean more just like, I think that we listen to ourselves, you know? And I think that like, not to get all psychological, but like, that is a huge thing. Like, what do you want to do in your career? What do you want to become? Like, who do you want to be? Like, it all comes from like listening to yourself, being an advocate for yourself, allowing yourself like time off and well-being and all these types of things, which is very contrary to the work culture, you know? But I think for us, like we both, like there's a feeling for us, you know? Like I think there's an unspoken thing where when we met to now, like there's, we communicate beyond just words. And I think that's because we have either had interests or have had the ability to like kind of focus on ourselves. And I don't mean that in like a super like self-help, selfish kind of way. It is selfish, but you know, in a way that it's allowed us to have a, I think a healthy relationship. Yeah, you're not internally healthy on your own, then you're not going to be healthy, healthy in a relationship of whether it's a business partner or a, a um, romantic relationship, it's not going to be healthy. So yeah. yeah. It's easy and first and then it, yeah. it, it down. in a two ways, anything it's, it's hard for it to, not get off balance sometimes. So I think that you need that respect and love for yourself and the other to kind of make sure you're always trying to align. And it's a, it's a daily thing for sure. Not just with us, but with our kids, with work, with everything, you know, we're big on balance. Definitely. We talk about balance a lot. Yeah. I think, yeah. One of those conversations that everyone has, is just kind of like, Oh yes, but you have to do it. Redundant. (laughs) Yeah. Those are fantastic answers. I love it. Okay. <laughs> so, personal projects. Um, we first came into contact with um, an animated short that you guys did, I don't know how many years ago, three years ago, um, called Death, Death Loves Life, which if anybody's interested, you guys wrote like a really kick-ass um, guest post about just like the process of bringing that whole thing to life. No pun intended. Um, and. The other one that caught my eye, I because I think I'm on your email list. I don't know if you still have an email list, but it it's not not lullaby story, lullaby theories. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about that because it's like the coolest damn thing I've ever seen. Um, and it's it's just so yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Uh, well, again, that one. Well, Death Loves Life is um, a story of death and life falling in love and how that doesn't really work out very well, but that it kind of does too. It's kind of like this, it's inevitable and and beautiful and ugly at the same time. So it's a very short 
what, two, three minute film. And uh, we got into a few film festivals. We didn't win awards for that one, but it was honestly, that was like a proof of concept. Can we do this? How does this work? How does, how do you define a character? What's this, what is this about? We learned on the project. We learned as we went and we were, hands were held by stellar talent, like amazing, talented people who just gave us their knowledge. It's a pretty amazing. Hmm. Um, of course we were paying them and, um, used, you know, savings that we would pull from other projects as we, instead of paying ourselves, we paid, pay, uh, toward a project that we could learn on. Um, and so that one was our first taste into like animation, story driven, animation, story driven animation. Yeah. And just to give credit where it's due, we were reading life of Pi Mm -hmm. and, uh, by Jan Martel. Martel. And uh, he, he's the one, the author is the one that wrote this idea of like, you know, maybe he got inspired from somewhere else too, but like that death is this like possessive lover of life and wishes so much to be alive, but can never be alive. And we thought it was super cool. So it was one of those stories we like, oh, we have to say, tell that, but we definitely learned on the job. And like to Claire's point, like any passion project you've ever seen coat of arms do, like it is a paid project from our end which makes again it's that like moral and it isn't that like hey we're paying tons of money don't get me wrong but like to us it is (laughs) but at least at the time um but we do try to be super fair because it's like why should we force people to do free work or yeah yeah, or tell our story exactly so anyway but yeah Yeah. so that was death love's life and that was uh you know i feel like that was was that pre-kids or post children I feel like we got interested. We've I always think, loved like animated movies yeah, and Toy yeah. Story. Yeah, I think it was. I think the girls were born yeah. when we started, or it was like they right really at that young. time. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I had done a poetry book, and it was illustrated by Ian Kim, and, and we were already in this realm of like kid kind of like stories. And uh, well, let's just be honest. Like we're kids. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like we are children on the inside, and so we love all that stuff yeah, yeah. so then uh with lullaby theories i don't know how do we come up with that we, i think i was like hey as a mother with two young girls i have we have twin daughters i want to encourage women and children and anybody to it, you know there's this backlash with science uh you know make sure that theories and the the the, the beauty and the, the curiosity. And curiosity of mm. science are held and, and there's um this magic to uh, talking about a theory and why don't we do something where we talk to our children about a theory in a very simple way we're not scientists we'll research it and we'll ask their scientists for their expertise on what we're saying in our scripts but basically keep it simple uh and and try to tell a story through little segments of like one to two minutes maybe three minutes at most about a particular theory that a five-year-old or younger could could digest. Um, the very first video spawned from the fact that we had time on our hands because a project was kind of going in and out of like, where are we headed with it? And where where is it going? So we wanted to keep our team busy. Um, we we're paying them their full day rate. So we needed to keep them busy. So we it spawned from that. Um, there were actually frames that were being thrown away like crazy. And we took one frame and said, this is it. We're going to tell the girls this epigenetic story, which is the story of how twins um, are diverging as soon as they're, they, they kind of become an egg. After they're born, like they're DNA modifiers, depending on like what you eat, where you grow up. So like the exact same DNA 
is never the same because you don't eat the same amount and yeah. do the same thing. And psychologically, and, you're impacted by right. your choices. And then if you're a smoker, then that impacts you. And so right. identical twins, which our girls are, are very different. And so we wanted to start kick off the whole series with who are these girls and what, what, what theory relates to them. Um, and that's that one, uh, honestly, it's so sweet. My, my brother and a few people say that it always hits them hard because like he was homesick and in college and he'll play that one just in the evening to relax. Like, you know, anxious about exams, he'll play that one Mm -hmm. on repeat and just listen to, and we did design it in that like my voice is supposed to be soothing. The girls are very sweet and cute in it. And, and it's, uh, the music is uh, like obviously lullaby like. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one was the kickoff. And then we did one about pain, uh, one about sleep and one about uh, parallel worlds. And each one is um, very different styles. Like every single one we explore a different style because it, that's, again, we want to to learn as we go. And um, what else can we add to that? No, I mean, I think that's it. Yeah. I mean, I think it, the, the series also acts for us as parents as snapshots in time of our kids, you know, um, you know, same, same, but different, which was the first one, the girls were three. Um, and then uh, the science of, of, uh, pain, uh, which was a secret message. I think they were almost four, then serial fluid, they were four and then parallel worlds. They were just turning five basically. Yeah. And so it's just like, and and it's something the girls like Lucy and Sophia, our two kids, like they love being involved. Like literally, like, you know, we haven't done another because it's been a huge investment and and we are again are on to new things and that sort of thing. But um they've loved being involved. And it was also a way for us to like Clara and I were married, we work together, and like we think it's really valuable for our kids to see what we do. So they at least have some idea of like what we do, what work is like, you know, um, is this something that would interest them in the future? And also just the self-starter idea of like, Hey, let's tell a story. What do you want to talk about? Like we let's write it. And then like, we need to record it, you know, just having some idea of what work can be like, and that work doesn't have to be anything specific, you know, like it could be animation, it can be art, it could be contract work or whatever, you know, like just to give them, start giving them some ideas of like what work life can be like. Um, and so anyway, I think that was a big uh, impetus for the, 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 the series as well as like giving them a chance to do what we do, be involved and do something as a family that has a lot of meaning for us. Yeah. Is that the one that you guys were nominated for a Webby for, or is that something else? Yeah. Yeah. So we, the whole series was Webby nominated. Yeah. So the four together. Mm-hmm. And I think the category, I can't remember, was it art direction? Art direction. Yeah. yeah. Um, which we feel honored for. I mean, we didn't win, but it was pretty phenomenal to be with like five other artists in like a pretty cool category. Yeah, it's like so. huge agency. I don't know, maybe it was BBDO or something. And then Apple and Spike Jones was mm-hmm. the other um and a few little independent yeah there's another too. independent one too yeah. but it's still cool for it sure was. and it's done well like it's had legs um mm-hmm. it went to several film festivals it won a few small little awards and um I, you know i I've, I've learned that like when you have a concept that just speaks to people and you execute it, it first of all it felt easy to execute because it just felt right like it just 
it just kind of, it almost feels like it just laid itself out and it's different than like some of the other projects. Like I felt like death loves life. We left it feeling like it's not right. Mm -hmm. Like I knew when we finished, I was like, it's not right, but I can't spend any more money or time on it. Um, and that happens sometimes with film and you just have to leave it and let it lay and know that you learned something, but it was, it's just not right. Well, even lullaby theories though. It's like, now it's like you look back and you're like, oh man, that's only a minute. Like there needs to be more yeah, meat. True. And you know, like we always thought of it as these like exercises and style and story and yeah. you know, like those snapshots of time. But when we show it to an audience, they always want more. They and I want to give them more, but right. we can't. It's just that it would have been outrageous. We couldn't have done it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I would love to, but it's just yeah. We're yeah. still waiting for and part of why we did it too, like just to be honest, is also like we would like to do more of this. So like, man, you know, hopefully there's a client that comes one day and that's and like, Hey, sees the work and says, we want, yeah, that. let's do, I saw your level. And actually we've had one client come that is pitching for us to do something, um, kind of similar, which would be phenomenal, you know, knock on wood, cross your fingers. But, um, yeah, that was another big goal, at least on the work side, you know, yeah. Did you guys do anything yourselves to promote this series and get it out there on the internet and get people talking about it? Um, things like that. Um, we didn't do anything paid, um, other than the film festival. So like the, all of the, the episodes have done really well on the film festival side. You know, I, I, I mean, maybe there's been like 30 to 50 festivals that they've gone to across all four of them. And so that has been one promotional aspect and that you know somebody in the festival sees it or you know the pr blast from that festival you know includes us and so they're a little link generation and, and that sort of thing um but other than that uh you know again we're three employees already doing a lot so um we definitely have not marketed as much as we would would have we liked built a, we built a website uh we yeah. obviously shared it in the regular like with a, um, you know, mailer and things like that. Yeah. But we didn't do anything, uh, like serious about distribution of it or we didn't bundle it in any way. We just, it's free online on our website or on lullabytheories.com. Yeah. We did create a website, lullabytheories.com where you can go see all of them. Yeah. And we're learning there too. Like we need to get better at like artists often are like so excited when they finish a product or finish a video or something that they want to just give it away for free because they want the world to see it. And we're trying to learn from that. And we just now are doing a documentary called Born in a Ballroom, very personal project about how my grandmother who passed away about uh, nine years ago, is that right? Eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, She wanted me to help her write a story. And instead of writing a story, now Jonathan and I are making a documentary in retrospect and kind of, uh, you know, using footage that we could find of her uh, along with some video or uh, voice archival things that I recorded and weaving a story of present day, how this woman impacted a place and a, and a community. Um, and it's uh, kind of a heartfelt, sweet, like story about legacy, but at the same time, how person and place are one and the same. And if you just look closely, we all have that connection. Um, and so we are trying really hard not to give this one away for free. There's a lot of investment. Um, there's a lot of art in it and in there's value there. And so instead of putting it on the website, just so people can watch it, we're going to, I think we're going to make a Blu-ray. Um, 
we are trying the film festival circuit to just get some hype. Um, we were interviewed by our local uh, NPR kind of station, pu public broadcasting station, uh, radio, um, about the film, and and they want to release it in the fall when we release our our launch. Um, so we're doing a little more planning, and that is so hard. Like I have to say, I'm like I just want everyone to see it. Like, can we just share it? And mm -hmm. but it's just it's not wise and especially for something that was such a big investment. I think these little ones, it, it was smart in the end, just release. Nobody's going to pay a dollar to see this. They want to just see it. So I feel like the documentary, it's a feature length, has more value and people will see that the, that the 20 bucks that we sell it for is, is valuable, or I hope so. Right. Yeah, I think, is everything all right on your end, by the way? I saw like- Oh, yeah. Oh, my, uh, my cat- um, so I closed my blinds and she likes to sit on the sill and just like look out and she's, so she's just like clawing in there and making noise and she's very not happy right now. Um, yeah, oh, well, sorry sounds familiar, her. man. <laughs> <laughs> um, yo, so that's actually a good, um, just segue. Cause I wanted to talk about the, this is your first feature documentary, right? Yeah. First feature well, for us. Yeah. yeah. Cause we did a perfect soldier with, uh, John, our friends and yeah. actually Chris Parkhurst, who I think, you know, um, he edited, uh, the first version of a perfect soldier, which we then got Claire in and rewrote it. And then I edited, and then, uh, he also edited on, uh, born in a ballroom yep. with Jonathan us. Jonathan and he edit, edited in together. Um, Chris basically did the bulk of like getting the meat of the, arc of the story together and then jonathan went in and fine-tuned it and actually nick cavalier nick who's cavalier. another filmmaker friend yeah. did like almost a proof of concept yeah. early on and i think life. that's another i just quickly with a shout out for nick i feel like that's another example of when you surround yourself with friends that are filmmakers or people who are advocates they're going to tell you okay what needs to happen in order to make this better and they're going to be honest and like nick was very uh, implement, or he was very important to that. For sure. He was trying really hard, bless his heart. Yes. Like he was trying really hard to edit together uh, the our mission of what our film was. And he was like, Clara, Jonathan, it's not working because Clara needs to be in it. It's her story too. Like she's expressing uh, this desire to make sure she fulfills a promise. You need to do that. And I resisted and resisted. And I was mm. like, Jonathan, hell no, I'm not going to be yeah. in this film. Like, this is not <laughs> one of those, like, I'm not Morgan Spurlock. I'm, I, I just feel like, yeah, I want to be behind the camera. And so uh, I, I caved and it's better for it. And, and, you know, when you try to step back and say, how is this story going to be the best it can be? Your ego hopefully can go away and you can get there. But a friend had to tell us. Well, and it's good to have those friends that John are willing couldn't to tell me because I don't listen to him. <laughs> <Well>, <laughs> it's good to have those friends that are willing to tell you the truth. Because like we still shared it with with friends that, you know, are like, hey man, it's great, you know, like, or I love it, you know, and it's sort of like, oh man, thank you. I'm so glad that you feel that way. But like we know it needs work, so please feel free. And you know, sometimes you need to like push people to give you stuff. And then you also as a director need to be like, Hey, I have these 10 comments and some of them are contrary and I'm not going to please everyone. Like how do these apply to the story as I want to tell it? You yeah. Know? And you have to know when you're like, Nope, I like that. I don't right. care if you don't. Exactly. Yeah. So. But anyway, so it's a good point about having colleagues that you can trust to give you some honest feedback. Yeah. So I was reading the the website for born in the ballroom earlier or born in a ballroom, a ballroom, yes. I think. Born um, in the ballroom. 
I didn't realize that it was your grandmother that this story was about. Yeah. Um, can you just share a little bit of what the, what the story is? And there's like a restaurant and a food component and like a folklore sure. component. So I'm, I just want to yeah. hear more about what's going on with this thing. Right. So we live in, and I was born in this community called Helvetia, and it's a Swiss settled community. In 1869, a handful of Swiss settlers came from Switzerland looking for home, and they were directed to come here. And over time, that identity of the Swiss culture has kind of sustained itself and through enormous effort of the community members. Um, and one particular community member was my, my grandmother uh, came back in 1960 six or so. She had kind of explored the world and traveled a bit before coming home and she had her children and she came home much like we, we have come home. Um, and she said, Oh my goodness, we're losing our identity. Uh, and it, it makes us unique and it's important. It's not that I'm saying our, my identity is better than an Appalachian, just generic identity, but you can't lose sight of this history that is important to this town. And so what she did was she founded a restaurant with a, a partner, a business partner, and the two women designed everything from how it would look on the inside to um, what the menu would have and the recipes. And they really incorporated a lot of the community to do that. They, they asked like a lot of the older women that were you know, kind of still cooking traditional recipes, like what's your best rosti or how do you cook your sour broughton or what do you like with your bratwurst and so forth. And so they tried to make sure that uh, the identity of the community was really uh, impacting how they designed everything, but also that it could be something that would hold that community together. And that is, it is true to this day that it's kind of a central part of this small town of 50 people. Um, and I, I'm serious, 50 as in five zero. Um, you know, we are uh, we eat there almost every week, and um, it's one of those places that you're like, oh, I'll meet you at the Hütte, and it's which is German for little house or hut. And um, people from all over the world have eaten there. It was on Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmerman as like a wild, interesting place to eat, and we cooked off menu that night when he came. We cooked uh, venison. We we put deer into a pit and cooked it overnight and uh, served him venison. And I think he ate some kidney or I don't know, something like that. Uh, but yeah, so it, it's been featured on a national level and international level as well. Switzerland is very interested in our community. They, the Swiss ambassador has come over and spent time here before. Several times, actually. Uh, several yeah, times. Just was it the year before last? They, yeah. And yeah. I think we're kind of this like enigma in, in, in Appalachia. Like Appalachia has a, a stereotype that we've received and um, Helvetia kind of stands out while we are very proudly Appalachians and mountaineers and very resilient, like at the Appalachians, we all are proud of, um, there's a European element to the, the style of architecture and the style of person you will find here. Um, we're winemakers, uh, a lot of people made their own cheese in their independent little farms. Um, they're gardeners and self-reliant. Uh, they, we all have our own, we have wood stoves in every home we do a lot of families are still canning from their gardens and um, only go to town to buy groceries once a week or once every two weeks in the winter um, so it's kind of the story that is trying to show you a different light on a, com a community that's Appalachian but also demonstrate that this woman impacted it and it's amazing how one person can needle their way into something and push you to do something that is uh, important 
So that's long winded, but yeah. yeah. The, the, the simple version is basically that Eleanor, Clara's, first of all, that Clara made a promise to her grandmother mm-hmm. to tell her story and that this is like, there's like several stories mixed and intertwining in the film, right? One is Clara made a promise and she's going to keep that promise to her grandmother that her grandmother lives on through the Hute, this restaurant she created, and through Helvetia as a community. And so it's, it's a very interesting story with how you intertwine these powerful or strong-willed women in an Appalachian community, which I think tells a story that is not very commonly shared you know, nationally, let's say, or publicly. I want to be honest for a second and be like, what? it's a film that Jonathan and I were like, oh, I don't want to see that film. Like, it's it's weird because we thought that when we first were making it. We we're like, this is not a film I would want well, to see. Well, th- to your, I think the point there is all, is that like we're not into like historical documentaries or like you know yeah. folklore documentaries. Like we're more into like I don't. I mean, not that. So I think it isn't. But go on. But it's, yeah. The irony is that like we made a story that we kind of were like not. It wasn't like, for example, I know filmmakers that only make films and it's like all about a passion that they have. And I feel like this was really important for us because it, it showed that we can make a film that we not necessarily, we wouldn't necessarily be uh, driven toward or want to tell, but at the same time, we weaved in things that we like mm. in order to make it not just a legacy film or not just a uh, talking heads film about historical community. We tried to to try to, to we really did try to show uh, uh, some nuance, uh, hopefully, and <laughs> we'll see how. It yeah, goes. we'll see how people. I mean, the film is definitely an interesting interweaving of our preferences and likes with you know Eleanor's story and this restaurant and the community you know and it's it's like I think any any of these layers you look at tells a very similar story which I think is very interesting you know and in the end for me it was like really uh impactful and cathartic and and it helped me like heal from losing her because she was important to me and so the process helped a lot it was i was like everybody who loses someone needs to just go make a film about it (laughs) it really does like let you be like man that makes i feel better about like the whole the loss and who she was and it's it's a good thing i will say the film it's definitely like a sentimental film you know and i think we worried about that a lot like oh man who wants to go see the sentimental film about this woman's grandmother you know but as we, and I think a lot of Clara and my resistance to being, I mean, Clara is the one in it. I'm not like, you see my hands in it a few times or hear my voice. So I lucked out. But, um, you know, a big part of involving Clara is that like, this is a pretty universal story. Like, yes, the cultures are going to be different. The environments are going to be different. Like a lot of that's different, but we all have family that we lose and we all I would hope to some degree, think about or struggle with how to carry on without somebody. Mm-hmm. And where is that person when their body isn't here or when you aren't feeling their spirit or whatever that is to you, you know? And so it very much is about that. As much as it's about other things, it is very much about the carrying on and the beauty of carrying on. Yeah, the navigation you know? after death right. of those who are left 
on earth. <laughs> right. But yeah, it's, it, I think that, that what's strange is Jonathan and I have this affinity for <laughs> death stories. I don't know how that happened. Is it your psychology background? I don't know. I am an existentialist, I'd say <laughs> to some degree. So maybe, maybe, but I, I mean, we definitely didn't go into it with that thought. Like literally this was a promise yeah. that you made and it was like, and that's part of the, the strength of the story is like, you know, yeah. and being, uh, being producers again, we saw that there is a community that, there's a marketable community that loves right. Alicia and loves the Hute. So yeah. we are lucky in that, like we have a built in audience already. So we're like, this is a no brainer. We have to do this story because at least there'll be a little bit there for us to, we know some folks will watch the film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so that actually touches on one of my next questions, which is, I think Jonathan mentioned in an email that there's like this, this overlapping community of people who love this restaurant or who, who know of this restaurant and then um, people who love folklore and then maybe like people with Swiss ancestry or like Swiss identity. Um, I'm curious what your plan is for reaching, reaching these communities and getting your film in front of them and hopefully a way that will lead to dollar bills in your pocket. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well that, yeah, that part we, we will see. Um, I think, and, and you add to this as you know, you, you see fit and tell me if I'm wrong, but right now, I think from a marketing perspective, we have relationships with some of these communities. So first of all, the Hute restaurant, her, you know, Clara's grandmother owned now her mom, brother and cousins own. And so already the restaurant will hold some of the Blu-rays and the films and help promote the film in the sense that like, it's a, it's, it's a film about the restaurant to, in many ways too. Like it isn't, it, it, it is to some degree, but it, it isn't like a fluff piece, you know, like it isn't like, Oh, the restaurant's great. And this is, these are, you know, these parts of the business, but it is an, it plays an integral role in the film for sure. Um, and so, you know, like through their, their social media, through their, you know, connections, there will be that audience built in. But then even beyond that, like building off the food, like we also have relationships in the state with other foodies, let's say, you know, like chefs, uh, people that have followings online um, in that food world to also help say, hey, like we actually even have some people that nominated the re- like not because of us, but the the restaurant was, uh, she was submitted. Submitted, but it didn't it get didn't a get nomination. Nominated. That's right. But it was like a James Beard Award for yeah. small uh, diners or, or restaurants that are help. Like I can't yeah. remember the category, but she like there's advocates of yeah. of the restaurant that are automatically kind of more connected than we are in mm-hmm. in that realm of community that would like the film and so that's kind of one of the outlets we're gonna and the the restaurant is loved in the state really it is and so i think there are chefs that have come through the restaurant part-time there it's just this sort of like you know the state is small and even the region the appalachian region like there aren't a lot of places like restaurants that are really championed nationally and so the restaurant has a, a a heart in that side of things already but there's also in our region, there's a ton of folklore and historical conversation because the identity of Appalachia is something that a lot of people feel has been misappropriated, I guess, or you know, misconstrued. misconstrued. And so especially now, there's a lot of conversation in those you know, communities about how do we take back the description of an Appalachian or a person living in this region. And so I think our film, hopefully others agree, 
does a very good job of showing positive identity for women, and but also and truthful, like, authentic yeah. and truthful identity of Appalachian people who, you know, aren't, you know, it, it, yeah, aren't yeah. a cliche. It's not like poverty porn, you know, like, yeah. or but there's a better way to put it, but you know, like there, there, there isn't a, it's a classy. hugely negative thing. We try to be classy. Mm-hmm. And so that's another community that we are connected with and we'll work with to help promote the film. You know, there are a few magazines that are going to do write-ups on the film uh, based on that. Um, so I think that that is also helping with kind of getting the word out for the film. I think we will do, in my, I don't know, in my opinion, my hope, we will do relatively well in the region. Uh, but the, what's to be seen is whether the foodie folklore legacy side of things goes enough to go throughout the United States. But I do think that we, our last option, which we haven't quite done yet is Switzerland. Like I think that the Swiss community, uh, will definitely be interested. And I think that they'd be like, oh my gosh, that's intriguing that they think that's Swiss. And they'll be like laughing at us right. a little bit maybe, but in a sweet way. Yes. Um, but I think they'll also be proud of the fact that like, damn, these people are literally trying to hold on with their dance and their food and things like that to an identity that's so across the ocean. And so there's an element of immigration story here, and um, which is timely, but I don't know if it's enough to carry us to the wider U.S., wider, uh, you know, world right. market, but we'll try. Yeah. Well, and beyond that, we're doing the film festival circuit. You know, I don't know. You never know how you're going to do, you know, like we've submitted to maybe 20 right. festivals. We've gotten two no's so far. So we'll see, you know, like I'm pretty confident we'll, we'll get into a few just based on things we've heard from them, but you never know. You never know. And so either way, that's why we'll do some of that almost like content marketing or you know cross promotion you know grassroots audience and stuff and then i think at some point we might also start doing a few like online ads for the blu-ray once once it's out well if you two ever want to talk about the essentially like grassroots online marketing and like reaching niche communities online like that's my that's like my bread and butter and everything i do these days so i'm would be would be thrilled to to help out a little bit um awesome the only other question, and this is just one that I've been thinking about this entire time, is how do your backgrounds, um, so I think Clara said sociology and was it anthropology? Mm-hmm. Um, and Jonathan was psychology. Like, how does that influence the work you're, you guys make, if at all? Maybe not. I definitely think it does. 100%. Um, I mean, I, I'm not going to say that sociology and the anthropology, because I studied them, that's what's causing me to do the stories or have the lens of a cultural interest or anything like that. But, or, you know, I just think, I feel like, you know, I was already on that path towards sociology and anthropology before I went to college. Like I knew that I liked journalism, writing stories, humans. And I grew up here where culture is so impactful. Like I grew up at the age of five learning old folk dances and, um, you know, my, my grandmother and my mom teaching me some recipes or my dad, uh, showing me like the traditional way to build, a a, a post and beam home, you know? So I think that that was naturally in me. And it just happened that I studied that because I already was driven toward it. And now my stories that I want to write and that we pursue often are go in tandem with that. And then the psychology element is definitely impactful. I mean, I think death loves like was all that, 
Right. And, and yeah. some of lullaby theories too. Well, I think it's so hard because like, it's the chicken or the egg, like you're saying, like you naturally went to sociology, anthropology, or was it because you studied sociology and anthropology you've done so well documentary wise and writing wise, you know? So I think that there's, it's tough to know that, but definitely, I mean, from, from my side, like with psychology, <laughs> what I've learned and what has interested me is in everything, you know, like from dealing with people from, you know, like, this industry can be really challenging from the standpoint that like it's easy to lose sight of meaning. It's easy to lose sight of certain things when you let the corporations or money or those types of things lead the charge. And so I think the psychology side has helped me a lot with like managing balance in life and stress, helping others do the same, even like with clients and colleagues, you know, working with people in a way that's healthy, you know, understanding like, why a, a client would give you a snarky or, yeah. it, it, you know, kind of rude feedback like that, like that whole thing has been helpful. And I think mm-hmm. that, uh, understanding humans is critical to being a good director and producer. Yeah. Um, for you, sure. You have to be able to work with people well. And I think yeah. psychology is a big big part of that right and even more specifically it's almost like empathy and compassion you know like Mm -hmm. being able to have a context for putting people in an area in your own mind that is a loving or kind place even when things aren't going well you Mm -hmm. know trying to find ways to understand a desire or curiosity to understand is also like there's a forgiving aspect to that immediately where it's like, okay, I'm not going to respond to this client email with how I really want to respond because I'm going to step back and have some curiosity and openness with it to first, you know, explore like, why would this have been sent? Like, what are they feeling? And then like allowing them to, you know, yeah. Get, get there, you know, yeah. rather than just be like, forget right. it. You so know? How, why is the audience going to feel this way for this right. particular yeah. emotive you know, piece of the film or whatever. But yeah, and I don't think Carlton, where we went to school, the two of us met there, it's a liberal arts school. So you're mm-hmm. encouraged to like totally. study something, but then branch out and study. I went, I took photography and art and you don't just stay in that field and really hone in. You kind of, it's, it's really diverse. Yeah, and I, was thinking the same. That's um, so true. I think film is the same thing for us. Like we are literally doing a liberal art life. Like we're kind of with film. It's, it's everything you get to do anything from, uh, you know, uh, like lullaby theories to, um, a marketing campaign about health insurance, like it's divergent or a branded film about uh, diabolemia, which is a diabetes where you re- deny yourself of insulin. Um, we're, we're getting to do a little bit of everything. And I think that that's pretty amazing. And it's, it speaks to um, where, where our minds have been for a long time. Yeah. It's almost like film school is that for film in the sense that like, yeah, you're learning a technical trade, but within that study, you're studying all these different stories where we didn't go to film school. We went to a liberal arts college, which allowed us to, instead of looking at the craft, looking at through the craft, it was like, we were looking at these different ways of looking at the world and these different types of stories from 
like the angle of the story, I guess, versus the craft. And, Does that make sense? Yeah, like, and thank God for artists that went and got the craft. To right, because us. we hire those people and work, and work with them to yeah. do better than we would do by ourselves. Because it's all valuable. Like, and again, yeah. it's one way you get there. And that artist that's taught us, you know, how to study a character in illustration is is it's 100% just as yeah. valuable. What that this made me think of one thing, like for for the like the two people that see this, right? No, there'll be more, but the, like for those that see it, like I do think that like some level of exploration is really important in whatever you do, like both for your personal life and who you want to be as a person, because through seeing differences and what other people are like and other places are like, do you learn who you want to be, but also just through the sheer benefit of diversity, like diversity of stories and cultures and techniques, like the more you explore within reason, like again, healthily, you know, like still come home, you know, like there's a balance, but I think it's super important to be an explorative and adventurer if, you know, in whatever it is that, that drives you, you know, like with people for sure, travel outside of the country you know, see what it's like to live in a third world country, see what it's like to live anywhere different, you know, uh, and meet those people and hear those people. But also in what you do, like in the art that you do, if you're a painter, like explore the different paintbrushes and colors and things. And that doesn't mean you have to use them all. It might mean like, man, I just like this. And like, look, all I do is like these five shades of blue and I use this one paintbrush, but this is my art, you know? But I think that exploration is important in the liberal arts college for us was that and travel was that so yeah i'd say that's a big a big part of any good foundation love it um all right so last question i have for you is just what's next what are you guys working on um and maybe even more than just like what's next immediately like what do you want the future to hold for your creative endeavors on like a big picture way yeah that's a great question it is a good question uh, well, immediately it's, uh, we're going to be doing some corporate projects that we, um, are working on right now and, and continuing that, that like balance between how will those translate to personal projects and how will those, um, be successful in their own right and be stories that we're proud of on in their own right. Um, distributing born in a ballroom and trying to have success on that, which we are very green and novice to. Um, so this will be an interesting and learning experience for us. And, and we're going to tap into the people we know and <laughs> <laughs> raw. <Yeah. laughs> um, anyway, so, and then long-term goals. I feel like we both really I feel like we want to elevate to maybe it's is it like fiction I, I don't know do I I can't I feel like we want to go that route like do we want fiction like that's such a good point yeah I think it's you hit it asked a really good question at an interesting time because we are just coming off of finishing a feature film and going into you know finishing right like film and going into the marketing side we just finished building a home, which was a three-year project. We just delivered on a bunch of stuff. So, like, there are a lot of, like, big... Like, we birthed a lot of yeah, stuff just now. exactly. We just... Oh, man. Um, so, with that said, I think, like, there's definitely more one to do. Um, and, you know, Claire mentioned, like, Claire has several scripts that are kind of 
in progress from animated you know, feature to live action. And I think like that definitely a long-term goal of ours is to like tell some, you know, like stories that are straight from, from us, so to speak, that aren't documentary um, focused. Even though I love that, so I think scares, also in the future. That scares the hell out of me because of casting. And... Yeah, it's it's yeah, yeah that's definitely, that. that's definitely a route that I think we we that is a route we will go. It's just a question of is it going to be in the next month because of this client that right. is giving Probably us not. the opportunity, or is it's it in ten years? Right, yeah. or less. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, either way, I, I do think that for the future, um, we also want to be open. You know what I mean to the things that change in our life to the interests that adjust on our end in our, in our kids and in our home, uh, because that also leads us, you know, like I think it's um, important to us to have that relationship with our future where we're not just dictating, but we're also And that goes kind of back to this, like, Oh, you know, you creatively design your life, but that this or or your career or your business, but you also allow, um, little impacts to come in and and nudge it certain ways and that's why it doesn't feel like creative design because you're you feel like oh well wait if i hadn't had children i would have never done lullaby theories there's no way like there's just no way but it's one of the best things we've done i think and so um that is is so uh it's it's scary but it's also really freeing to know that like you don't have to have the answer Mm -hmm. tomorrow for what you're doing the next day because tomorrow is different than than today and and tomorrow i might um see something and be like oh now i know i'm gonna make this amazing you know I don't know, 360 video about outer space or I don't know, whatever. Right. Like it's just. Well, it's interesting because like when, when writing, when editing, when whatever, when you're doing something creative and you hit that roadblock, sometimes, you know, like people either work through it or they go for a walk, you know, like you have caught us at our walk. Like we are just starting our like, yeah. cool. Like let's go for a hike in the woods. Taking and a just nap. like without the goal being like, I'm looking for what's next. It's like, Let's just take a walk and see what happens. And we have, the, you know, like like I said, we've got scripts. You know, we we had another documentary idea, but we just want to like, you know, let let the flow go I, a little yeah, bit and, and see where it takes us. That those are your best stories aren't going to necessarily be pushing or forcing those two scripts that I've had on the back burner for three years. For me, they're just I'm my I I don't know that that's it. So mm-hmm. I'm wanting uh, I don't know the universe, whatever you want to call it, it's just going to speak to us. And then we'll, well get there. And, and one last point, sorry, like we're, we're obviously talkers, but <laughs> one last thing that I just thought of that's like really healthy about this is that, uh, or I hope it is like, I don't really know, but I hope it's healthy is that I know Clara has helped me a lot in my life with saying no, with finding balance, with um, listening to myself, those types of things. And in this instance, I think the healthy thing is to like enjoy life. You know, it's really easy to like my personality is what's next. Like, oh man, okay, we just delivered that, but like now let's start on this thing. So typically, and like I have, yeah, those things in my mind, like the things, you know, I have those things, but I do think that it's worth pushing, like also enjoying where you are, you know? And like, so I think we're working on that. 
And that's kind of what you're maybe hearing too. It's like, we have things we can do, but like, holy, you know, we just did a lot and like, let's enjoy for a little bit, you know, like let's recover. Let's, you know, love life for, for what it is right now, you know? Yeah. So. I think that's a great place to wrap up. <laughs> and uh, yeah, is there, I think you guys just imparted like a ton of wisdom throughout this, but is there any, just anything that you would say to aspiring creatives, entrepreneurial creatives, um, just as like a nice little parting gift? Yeah. It's okay to be scared. I think that's a, it's a good feeling. Like I am scared of what our next step is. I'm like, what the heck is it going to be? I'm scared of casting. I'm scared. That's okay. And I think admitting it, but like having, again, those advocates around you that are going to, uh, welcome the fact that you might be scared, but not judge you for it and still, um, push you and you push them in a, in the ways that your talents allow is, uh, is important. And, in, in you're not, you're not going to fail that way. You're not. So I think the one thing I'll say is like, who, you know, there is room for you, you know, like I think, you know, each person needs to find out who they are, what they want to do and how they want to do it. But no matter what it is, there is room in whatever aspect of the industry it is for you. You know, I think it's just got to find your voice. Yeah. You got to find your voice. And sometimes you got to work super hard to get to where you want to go, but like you'll get, you'll get somewhere, you know, it might not be like, okay, I want to get to this top of the mountain but in trying to climb that mountain, you may find another mountain that you'll end up climbing. And it's going to be better. And it's going to be totally better. Totally going to be better. Yeah. You know, so I think maybe don't get caught up with needing a very specific thing, but still also totally go for it and just know like you can be happy and healthy, you know, which is really what's important no matter which path you end up finding yourself on. You know? Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. For the links and resources mentioned in this interview, as well as the full archive of Filmmaker Freedom episodes, just head over to filmfreedomshow.com. And while you're there, feel free to browse around the Filmmaker Freedom website and check out some of the other rad content, including the weekly newsletter. Every Sunday morning, I send out a variety of the most useful, inspiring, thought-provoking stories I've come across that week, as well as some other cool stuff. It'll help you build your skills, master your psychology, and keep up with this ever-changing business. So if you're ready for an email that you'll actually look forward to each week, just head over to filmfreedomshow.com newsletter. Also, if the ideas in this show resonate with you, you're a great candidate for Freedom Fighters, which is my private community just for entrepreneurial indie filmmakers. It's totally free to join, but there is an application process to get in. So if you're interested in surrounding yourself with a group of like-minded entrepreneurial filmmakers who will push you to succeed and help you grow, just go to filmfreedomshow.com community. And lastly, I'd just like to give one more shout out to my friends over at Music Vine for sponsoring this show. The groovy intro and outro music came straight from their library, of course, and there is loads more where that came from. So if you're a discerning filmmaker who needs quality music, just go to musicvine.com and use the code FILMFREEDOM for 25% off your next order. Once again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. 
and I will see you in the next episode of Filmmaker Freedom. Peace. <laughs>